Well, the fact that we are here in this room this morning means that we are countercultural. I don't know if you're aware of that, but our whole culture is moving away from Sunday morning church attendance. I went online this week and started looking at some of the statistics, and I was expecting to be surprised at the great diminishment of the numbers between church going now and maybe 60 years ago. But I was actually more surprised at the diminishing numbers even in the last 10 years. People are not going to church very much anymore. So what do we know that the rest of the culture seems to be forgetting? Well, we can learn actually from today's text, this prayer from King David, some things about the value of being in the sanctuary, of worshiping together. The context for today's story is that King David has just been spoken to by God. God has established a covenant with David. This is what happens in the verses preceding today's verses. It's one of the big covenants of Scripture. There's a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Abraham. There's a covenant with Moses. And there's a covenant with David. And the promise God gives in the covenant with David is that one day his throne would produce a king who would not just be the king of the nation of Israel, but would be the king of the whole world. Those of us this side of the cross know that this covenant was fulfilled in Jesus, son of David. So David has just received this amazing blessing, this covenant from God. And look with me then at verse 18. If you have your Bible closed, I would invite you to open it again. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. It says this, right after he's received this covenant from God, look what it says in verse 18. Then King David went in, and sat before the Lord. King David went in and sat before the Lord. We could read this and think, oh look, David went and had a quiet time in his, on his own, in his study. Or David went and hung on a hammock or went on a hike on a trail. No, 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 this is something very specific in the Old Testament context. David went in and sat before the Lord means he went into the tabernacle. And he went as nearly as he could to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat, to the presence of the Lord. That's what that means. So in other words, this covenant was established with David. And the first thing that he did is he went to church. He went to church. He went into the tabernacle. He went and sat before the Lord. So what did David experience in that place? Well, the verses that Maria read for us this morning are the prayer that David prays in the tabernacle as he sits before the Lord. And I see three things that happen in this prayer. David experiences three things that all of us can experience every Sunday when we come into this place, when we are countercultural, when we're doing something different than the rest of culture, when we come into this place, we can experience the same three things that David experienced on this day when he went into the tabernacle after God gave him this amazing promise. Those three things are David experienced humility, holiness, and divine purpose. Humility, holiness, and divine purpose. I want to unpack those and explore those this morning. The first one is humility. God has just given David quite a promise. And look at what he says again in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Do you hear his humility? 
Who am I and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can I, David, say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. I love David's humility. I think about what David might have said otherwise. David might have gotten this covenant established with God, and David might have replied back to God saying, you know, you're right, God, to bless me in this way. God, you finally figured it out. Saul is corrupt, so he's finally been done away with. I've walked with integrity all these years. You're right to bless me, God. I deserve this reward. David doesn't say any of that. He receives this covenant, this promise, as an unearned gift. David is is dumbstruck. Who am I that you would bless me in this way? He receives it as an unearned gift. In 2006, Nancy and I moved to Central Park West in Manhattan. I was serving a church on the North Shore of Long Island, and I interviewed and I felt called to lead the ministry of FOCUS, Fellowship of Christians in Universities and Schools in the New York City chapter. And we knew that part of that job uh, was that we got to live in an apartment on Central Park West that was donated to the ministry, a free gift. How cool is that? And I seriously think that for five and a half years of living there, I was dumbstruck like David was. Who am I, Lord, that I get to live in this amazing gift? Jackie's laughing at me. She's picturing this West Michigan kid walking into Central Park West every day. I walked onto the, I said hi to the doorman, got on the elevator every day with wide eyes. I can't believe I get to live here. This is the coolest thing. Was I not like that, Nance? Yes. And I remember one time, Somebody, I said that to somebody while we were living there. I was just dumbstruck. I said, how cool is this? We get to live in this awesome apartment on Central Park West. And somebody said, well, you know, Nathan, you did earn this apartment because you, you know, there was competition and you were the one who got the job and this apartment is part of the compensation package. So you, you did earn it. And I thought, ooh, how clever. The human heart is so clever. It can come up with creative ways of looking for excuses that we've earned the blessings we've been given. I didn't pay a dollar for that apartment. I didn't earn it. It was a gift. It was a grace from God. David responds the same way. He could have looked for little creative ways to say, I do deserve this covenant with God. I do deserve this blessing, unlike Saul, unlike so-and-so. But David receives it humbly as a gift. And what we see here is that humility is the mother of gratitude. If we're humble before God, we'll receive everything as a gift, life itself. God didn't need to give us life on earth. He didn't need to give us heartbeats as we slept last night. It's all a gift. It's all his grace. And we can say to him, just like David did, Who am I, O Lord God? And who is my house that you brought me thus far? And we're grateful for all that he's given us. There's an important distinction when I think about gratitude in this way. We are grateful for things, we're grateful for blessings, but more importantly, we are grateful to the one who gives the blessings. I'm often confused on 
a holiday like Thanksgiving. I don't understand how an atheist celebrates Thanksgiving. Thanks, we're thankful for this food. We're thankful for this house. If you're not thankful to the one who supplies those things, then you're not really thankful. You're just celebrating your own achievements. So it's not really thanksgiving, is it? It's just celebrating your own accomplishments. Thanksgiving is that we're thankful to the one who gives the blessings. And that leads us to the second thing that David experiences here in the sanctuary where he goes to church on this day. He's been given this covenant. The first is humility, and the second one is, is holiness. Now, I need to give that a little bit of explanation because when we hear holiness in the Bible, it kind of sounds like, like, I don't know, like an old school kind of conservative Christianity that turns into holier than thou. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not encouraging us to be holier than now. But what happens here, what David starts talking about, it's hard to see at first, but he's really talking about holiness. Holiness in the Bible really means to be set apart, to be pure and set apart and different. And David begins talking about the holiness of God in verse 22. He first reflects on the holiness, the otherness, the the set-apartness of God, where he says this in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. See, that's holiness language. There is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. See, he's talking about the the otherness, the holiness, when we consider all of the false gods presented by this world. And then we look at our God, we say there is none like him. He is holy you learn this phrase in seminary that, that you, you learn that God is wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly other. And that defines his holiness. There is none like him. There is no God like our God. And then David starts reflecting then on the people of God with similar language. Look at how he describes in verse 23 the otherness, the separateness of God's people. Verse 23, and... Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. You see the language that David is using here? He's describing the otherness, the holy otherness of God, the holiness of God. And then he says, and who's like your people? Look what you've done for your people. You've made them other as well. You've extracted them from the nation of Egypt and Egypt's false gods. Why? To make for yourself a name. You've brought your people out of that land and into a new land. This is what makes God's people other. It makes God's people separate. It makes God's people holy. So in the Old Testament, it was kind of obvious to define who God's people were. They were the people who were extracted out of Egypt and its gods and placed in a land with a border, with a boundary, the nation of Israel. But those of us who are in the New Testament covenant, we're a little bit different than that. We don't have a nation state anymore like they did in in Israel in the Old Testament times. But in the same way, we have been extracted from the world in some way, from the world and its false gods. And we now belong to God just like they did to make a name for him. We are separate. We are holy as he is holy. You see what's going on here? All this happens in the sanctuary. David just goes into the tabernacle to praise God. First, he's, he's just humble. 
He's showing humility. Now he's describing the holiness of God and the holiness of God's people. We're different. We're set apart. We don't worship the gods of Egypt or the gods of our culture anymore. We're set apart for God. We can think of this, there's this phrase that we are citizens of heaven. We have a citizenship that is in heaven. That makes us a little bit weird sometimes in our citizenship on earth. I can think of a lot of examples. Even recently, just on Wednesday night, picture this, a beautiful home in New Canaan filled with 80 women, those of you who are in this room, not having a social party necessarily, although there was wonderful social benefits from it for people and their friendships. But they were talking about, Ingrid was leading all those women in a conversation about saying yes to God, dedicating their lives, just like we dedicated young Jude today, to the Lord. That's weird, isn't it? If you think about all the living rooms across New Canaan this past Wednesday night, how many of them had 80 women dedicating their lives and hearts to Christ? One, how many of the living rooms in Greenwich, Fairfield County, maybe the whole Northeast, were we the only living room in the whole Northeast to be doing that on Wednesday night? You see, we're different. We're set apart. We do things differently. The Tinglers dedicating Jude to the Lord this morning. Grace Chow, where's Grace sitting? Is she with you, Emily? Oh, there she is in the back. Grace, who was leading us in worship today. How old are you, Grace? She's 18 years old, this one who was leading our worship this morning. That's, a, that's weird. How, how many 18-year-olds do you know? And where are you going to school now, Grace? She's a freshman at Princeton? How many 18-year-old freshmen at Princeton do you know who lead worship like that? <laughs> Grace, you are so weird. And weird is good in God's kingdom. (laughs) Who is like your people, Israel? Who is like Jude? Who is like these women in Sandy Bakes' living room? Who is like Grace? We're different. We're set apart. We're citizens of heaven. We do things that don't make sense sometimes here on earth. But it's not just that God makes us different. It's that he makes us different for a purpose. Another phrase from the New Testament tradition is that we are in the world, but not of the world. It's not that Grace and Jude and these women are are so different that they can't relate to anybody. They have no interaction with the world around them. No, we've been given a purpose, and that's what David discovers right here in the sanctuary as well. Humility, holiness, and then divine purpose. He's been set apart. We've been set apart for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Look at this language here in the scriptures, verses 24 through 26. Look at the ways he talks about God's glory and how many times he uses the word forever, starting in verse 24. You established for yourself your people to be, to be your people forever, and you, O Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servants, saying, I will build you a house. We'll stop there. 
See, David is simply hearkening back to the verses that precede these ones. He's remembering the promise that God has given to establish through his lineage, through his house, one day a savior, a king who would sit upon the throne of the whole world. David has a renewed sense of purpose. This is my purpose in life now. And it's to bring you glory, O God, in this forever lineage. This language I used a moment ago is from 1647. It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We can put that on the wall there, Matt. What is the chief end of man? You've heard me preach this before, and guess what? You're going to hear me preach it again because this is like a life motto for me. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What's my purpose in life? Why am I here? Here's the answer. Your chief end, your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what David is describing right here in the tabernacle. Again, what could have David said? He could have said, wow, this is great, God. Now my name will be known around the world. Everyone's going to have the name of David on their lips from now forevermore. No, he says, may your name be magnified not mine. My purpose is to glorify God. And then this forever language, David is hearkening to the future, the eternal future of God's promises. Now, I realize that when we use language like this and we talk about glorifying God and enjoying him forever, it can get a little bit cerebral. It can get a little bit kind of out there and and intangible. Like, how would a life like this actually look? How would a life like this actually look in Fairfield County? What would your life look like if your mission, if your chief end was to glorify God and enjoy him forever? You know, as preachers, you're always looking for illustrations. You're looking for ways to point people to something tangible, something they can relate to. And for this illustration of how might a life look that glorifies God and enjoys him forever, I want to present to you this living example of this that we've had in our midst for the last 11 years. I'm talking about Chuck Davis. Is this a man whose life glorifies God? And will he enjoy? Nobody enjoys God like Chuck. (laughs) But the first half, to glorify God, you guys know him well enough by now. What does he say to you when you say, Chuck, that sermon was awesome? Yes, he says, bless the Lord. You can't give the guy a compliment. Chuck, that was awesome. That sermon changed my life. He says, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. He wants the name of the Lord to be magnified in his life. And he has succeeded in doing that, hasn't he? I know this about him, that if one year from the day he walks out the door, if nobody remembers his name, he won't care as long as they remember the name of Jesus. That's how Chuck has presented his ministry among us. He seeks to glorify God, not himself, and to enjoy him forever. There was a moment a couple of weeks ago that I will never forget as long as I live. Chuck walked his daughter Linnea down the aisle right here in the sanctuary. And I had the privilege, I did the beginning part of the ceremony, so I was standing right here, uh, you know, as the minister to say the beginning part of the ceremony. So I got the best view in the house of Chuck walking down the aisle with Linnea. Now, Linnea was beautiful and radiant. Don't get me wrong, but he was the one to watch. (laughs) Because he was just enjoying that moment. Now, I do a lot of weddings. I've never seen a father of the bride enjoy. He was floating 
down the aisle. And it wasn't just that he was enjoying his love for his daughter and his new son-in-law in the church. He was enjoying God, you see. Chuck is a great example that we have been witnessing for the last 11 years of how to just enjoy God. I want to enjoy God like Chuck Davis enjoys God. Now, sometimes when pastors leave, their reputation gets so big they become lionized. I don't want you to be mistaken. Chuck has faults. He's a sinner, just like the rest of us. But here, no, seriously, here's one thing that he has done so well in our midst to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. That's our chief end. I just want to conclude with one thought for you. We could look at a text like this. We could see King David being given this amazing covenant by God. It's an unconditional covenant. All David had to do was have kids. In his lineage, his name would be blessed forever. And David runs into the sanctuary and he prays this amazing prayer of humility, holiness, and divine purpose. We could look at that and we could say, well, gee, nice for King David to get that awesome covenant. I'd praise God like that too if God gave me one of these unconditional covenants. But here's the good news, people. (laughs) We actually have a better covenant than David got. In a moment, Pastor Jackie's going to come to the table and she's going to lift up the cup and she's going to repeat the words of our Lord Jesus who said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. We've been given a covenant even better than David. We've been given a blessing even better than a free apartment on Central Park West. We've been given a covenant where he went to the cross to pay the penalty, to pay the punishment, to receive the punishment for all of our sins. It's unconditional for us. He took all the conditions of the covenant upon himself. He died in our place. Then he rose again so that we could enjoy God forever in his presence. That's the covenant we have. So when we come into this room, when we're weird and different than the rest of culture and we come into this sanctuary in his presence, we can remember this amazing gift, this covenant. We can come in with humility, with holiness, and with a renewed sense of our purpose in the world. Amen. Let's begin to